Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at Atlassian.com slash Teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Live from the BBC, The Naked Scientists. Well, a very good evening to you. Welcome to the Christmas festive edition of The Naked Scientists. With me, Dr Chris, with Dr Dave. Hi, Chris. And with Dr Phil. Hi, Chris. Yep, we're here stripping down science for you for Christmas 2005. There's no direct theme for tonight's programme, and that's because it's over to you. It's very much your chance to throw any science question you want at us. And we have Dr Dave, who's a physicist. We have Dr Phil, who's a space scientist, here in the studio to take your questions. And as an added bonus, if we can't answer your question, we'll give you a prize. That's how confident we are we can hopefully help you out this evening. So call in now, 08459 25 2000, or you can email me, chris at nakedscientist.com. These prizes are on a first-come, first-served basis, okay? So get your question in early, and you stand a maximum chance of getting one. Well, what else have we got lined up for you tonight? Well, we want you to help us with a big experiment. Dave is normally our kitchen science guru. He's joined us in the studio tonight to coordinate East Anglia's big experiment. Dave, what have you got in mind for us? Well, this evening we want to do one of the biggest experiments on radio this year. We want to um, solve, the, uh, solve the old question of whether water runs down the plug hole anti-clockwise in the north, northern hemisphere and clockwise in the southern hemisphere. So if you've got a sink, a bath, a jacuzzi, whatever you like, fill it up with water, pull the plug out and see which way it goes. If you, if you do this, give us a ring on 08459252000 and tell us what happens. There'll be a prize for, who, for, the peop- for the peop- some of the people who's phone in for you. That's right. If you, if just by taking part and helping us out with this important scientific experiment, which way does water go down the plug hole in the northern and southern hemisphere? Hopefully, we're going to get some people in the southern hemisphere. Maybe even some people in the equator ringing up. You never know. Oh eight four five nine twenty five two thousand. If you take part, your name goes in the hat. You could win yourself a prize, and it's a good prize because coming up tonight, we have to give away an Encyclopedia Britannica on DVD, and that's important because it's worth nearly a hundred quid. And we've also got some fantastic tickets to go down to the Science Museum in London and go and see a. 3D movie at the IMAX and this is really spooky it's amazing these 3D movies because you sit there you put these very clever glasses on which enable you to see in three dimensions and literally what's going on on the screen comes out to meet you it's got to be seen to be believed you can win those tickets here tonight on The Naked Scientist 08459 25000 with a rundown of what else to look forward to on tonight's show Dr Phil what will you be bringing us? Thanks Chris Uh, Okay, today we're going to find out also why Mars could have been the... uh biggest ever booze cruise destination in the solar system and also the perfect invention for women drivers scratch proof paint that would certainly help my wife 
If you've got any questions for The Naked Scientist, 08459 25 2000. The Naked Scientist podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. Well, first up here on BBC Local Radio in the Eastern Counties, Naked Scientist, with me, Dr Chris, Dr Dave and Dr Phil, here with you for uh, an hour this evening, just before Christmas. It's our last show of 2005. I'd like to tell you about this invention about paint, because for me, this sounds fabulous, because my wife is in the habit of dinging the car on and off. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you had a car paint that could repair damage? Well, that's what Nissan, the car company, reckon they've come up with. They say it will add £400 to the cost of a, of a car. They're going to add it to an, a sports utility vehicle, an SUV, to start with. Here's how it works. They've added this very high-density resin to the paint, which essentially means the paint is still mobile or it can flow. So if you damage the paint in any way or put a slight scratch into it or a, di- or a dent into the paint surface... When the warmth of the sun strikes the paint surface, or you can pour some hot water over it to speed the process up, the paint will reflow and reform into a correct smooth layer, covering over the damage. They reckon it has a fifth of the amount of wear and abrasion that a car surface would normally get from, say, taking it to a, an automatic car cleaner, you know, one of those car wash machines, or, a, 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 or any other kind of abrasion that you can unleash on a car. And it's also guaranteed to, to last three years. It's got a lifetime of at least three years. So that sounds like an ideal invention. They do, however, caution that for women drivers like my wife, um, it can't scrape up broken glass off the pavement, and therefore uh, you should still carry round in the boot a dustpan and brush uh, on the off chance you might have a little minor skirmish somewhere or perhaps uh, hit a lamppost or something when parking but even so there's you know you can't do everything but it sounds like a great invention okay well chris uh, i've got a story about some uh, some scientists in minnesota they decided to try and solve a 300 year old mystery apparently isaac newton and his mate christian huygens were having a big argument about swimming in goo okay isaac newton reckoned if you swam in <laughs> that sounds fun <laughs> You know, that, what else do you do on a Saturday night in Cambridge 300 years ago? OK, Isaac Newton reckoned that if you swam in goo, it would slow you down because there's more drag. It's like if you pull your hand through treacle, it will slow it down. Whereas Chris and Huygens reckoned that you'd be able to grip the water better and you'd be able to go, just, you'd be able to go the same speed as you would be before because the amount of extra grip would cancel out the extra drag. Well, these scientists in Minnesota, right, they got 300 kilograms of guar gum, which they used to thicken salad dressing. They put it, filled a 25-metre swimming pool with this stuff. Oh, my God. It apparently was quite difficult to do. They had to get 22... How deep was this? Yeah, a proper full-size swimming pool. Yeah, it was two metres at least at the deep end, two, three metres. Yeah. Um, they had to get 22 different kinds of approval before they could do it, you know, from, like, the swimming pool owners, the Can you um, imagine how to clean people. that out? I don't want to think about it. I'm very glad it wasn't me doing the so experiment. So did someone actually go swimming in it, though? Yeah, they got, like, 10 or 15 students to swim up and down the swimming pool, and apparently it made absolutely no difference. They're the same speed as they were in water before. But how difficult is it to swim? How thick was it? It was about twice as thick as normal water, so kind of like snot, basically. So could you do a belly flop in it painlessly, or would it be worse? It would probably be a bit worse, because it would hit you You're harder. not sort of bouncy. You don't no, bounce off. No, it'd be just like normal water. You just hit you and probably get out of the way even slower. I've got an email here from uh, Mark Ellaby, uh, and he says, Hi, guys. Got a couple of tech questions I think you might be interested in. Um, when will there be radar-controlled brakes on cars? And that's quite interesting, because I was just talking about the uh, Nissan invention of a scratch-proof paint. Well, I was just having a look at this, because it's quite interesting. There's a number of different things that are coming online for cars now. Uh, Volvo have got a system that literally wakes you, it shakes you awake if you show signs of driver fatigue. So, in other words, the car's sensitive to the characteristic hallmark changes in driving habit that people show when they're nodding off at the wheel, and the car kind of vibrates you back to awareness, so it stops you nodding off. 
off. Mercedes have got this really cool thing, which is a crawl function. And what you can do is, when you're in a traffic jam, it's, re- it's a real pain having to keep putting your foot on and off the brake or putting the car in gear, pulling away, that kind of thing. What they've got is a system that uses radar to watch the car in front. It knows how far it is away, and when the car in front edges forward, your car edges forward. And so you can just sit there and read the paper or have a snooze. Not, not that you do that or anything, of course. Uh, and it, it makes driving in, in heavy traffic much more enjoyable or much more, much more easy to, to, to put up with anyway. I saw some interesting research about this kind of thing a, a while back. Apparently, they've been doing research on pilots with their automated checklists. And if the pilots um, have everything automated and they've got nothing to do, they kind of, their brains kind of go to sleep and they react really badly to an emergency. But if they have to be thinking all the time to fly the plane, then if something really bad happens, they're already aware of what's going on and they can click in and solve the problem much quicker. So Naked Scientists, Dr Chris, Dr Dave and Dr Phil, we're here with you through until 7, taking any science question on anything. Remember, if we can't help you out with your question, then, there's a, then your name goes in the hat and you can win a prize. And you can also win a prize by having a go at our competition, Science Fact or Science Fiction. Very simple. We give you a couple of simple science facts. Tell us if we're true or if we made them up. If you get tonight's top score, you walk away with our prizes. We've got an Encyclopedia Britannica on DVD to give away, and we've also got a trip down to the IMAX in London to see a 3D movie. So get calling now, 08459 25 2000. Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. Hello, Ian. Hello, Chris. Good evening. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. What can we do for you? Oh, yeah, Chris. I wonder if you could uh, help me out on this, please. You couldn't tell us what COPD is, please, because I believe you are a medical man, aren't you? Yeah, COPD is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Yeah. It used to be known as chronic obstructive airways disease. And what this is, is inflammation and the accumulation of excess mucus or uh, sort of snotty stuff within the airways. And they get narrowed and it becomes difficult to breathe and it gets difficult for people to get enough air in and out of the body. And so it gets known as chronic obstructive pulmonary disease because once you've got it, it tends to keep coming back and it gets worse as time goes on. That's the actual proper textbook definition. It actually exists in a sort of a spectrum. Some people have very, very mild COPD. Some people have very, very severe COPD. So it's essentially a combination of an obstructive airways phenomenon, a bit like asthma, that's a bit reversible. It's got too much mucus in it, and you also got a bit of damage underlying that to the lung tissue. And some people are worse than others. It tends to be associated with smoking. Yeah, that, that's what I wanted to ask you, Chris. What is the main cause of that, then? Well, if you smoke too much... Or, or you, some people could argue that smoking at all is too much. But if you smoke, there's a lot of toxic substances in smoke. It's not just nicotine, which is a thing that people get addicted to. There's a lot of other irritants and very harmful chemicals in the yeah. smoke, which get... About, there's quite a hell of a lot, isn't there, of these nasty chemicals in cigarettes? There's a lot of the chemicals in there, and, and they are very irritating. And the way the lungs keep themselves clean is that the surfaces of the lungs are covered in these tiny hairs, which are themselves covered in a layer of mucus. And the hairs beat very rhythmically, all in the same direction, and they make a thing called an escalator, or a mucociliary escalator is a posh name for it. And so this escalator pushes the phlegm out of the deep reaches of the lungs up towards your throat where you swallow it. So it's a sort of self-cleaning mechanism. But if you smoke for a long period of time, A, you damage those cilia, so they actually stop being cilia and they just become flattened cells. And you make the lungs make more mucus because the lungs think, if I make more mucus, I'll keep myself cleaner. This is how I get rid of all this stuff that's coming in. And the combination of not having the the, the cilia there to clean the lungs and excess mucus means it all accumulates and then you're much more likely to get infections because things lodge in there that shouldn't. And then you've got a whole vicious cycle going on because the lungs get inflamed and then they get upset. And because they're upset, they're more likely to have more reactive airways 
airways, so the airways tend to constrict a little bit more, Lovely. and the whole thing goes on and on. Yeah, and then a spirometry test to test these lungs. Right, well, the, the way in which we find out how well people's lungs work is to essentially test how well you can blow. So scientists and doctors have this very clever um, system where you pick up a big tube and you blow as hard as you can into it for as long as you can. And what this tells doctors is, A, how much air you can move in a very short space of time and, to and what the total capacity of the air that you can move in one go is. And from those values, you can work out how well someone's lungs are working. And what's also more important is you can track how their disease is changing because you can look at their readings for this year and then you can look next year and the year after. You can see if they're getting worse or not. Is that measured in percentage? Oh, you're probably thinking of what's called the FEV 1%, or forced expiratory volume in one second, as a percentage. So what that means is, to, to work out how quick your lungs are at expelling their contents, you puff really hard, you work out how much comes out in the first second, and you express that as a percentage of the total amount you can shift overall. And if people have very narrowed lungs that are not very good at, at f forcing air out fast, it takes them a long time to get all the air out. So they have a low FEV 1%, and that's a sign of obstruction. That's what that means. Right. So what does 100... What would 105% mean? You, well, you, they're compared with what's normal for someone of your age. And so you have a, an expected or a predicted threshold. To do with your age. That's that right. And then, the... so relative to that, you express your results relative to what should be expected for someone of your age and height and history. Oh, I see. So then it could either be plus or minus. Uh, it could be a little bit either side, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, and we're going to move on, because yeah, we're a little bit short for time. Now, do you want to help me out now with our water test? Anti-clockwise. You, so you've in put... the Northern you, Hemisphere. You've found the water went down your sink anti-clockwise? Yeah. So, Dave, that's okay. one for Ian. He's got anti-clockwise. OK, I'll write that down in my list. Dave's keeping a tally, Ian. I'm right, OK. OK, your name's in the hat for that, but do you want to have a go at the quiz? Yes, please, mate. OK, yes. two questions. Here we go. First question. We measure the strength of the wind using the Beaufort scale. Is that science fact or science fiction? That is uh, fact. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Uh, the uh, wind is measured using the Beaumont, uh, the Beaufort scale. Yep. Well, that's one out of one so far. Next question. The Chinese have produced a super-sized vitamin-rich vegetable by sending seeds into space. Is that science fact or science fiction? Oh, no idea. Um... Sound dodgy to you? Fiction. Oh, I was wrong. I'm afraid not, Ian. Uh, apparently it's true. So what's all that? What's what are they doing there, then? Um, they've been sending seeds up in their space rockets and they get exposed to cosmic rays, which apparently alters the um, plant's DNA, so basically mutating them. And some of these produce vegetables which grow much larger than normal oh. and increase vitamin yields. I see. Right. OK. Well done, Ian. Thank you very thanks, much. Thanks very much for joining us on The Naked Scientist. Thanks very much, mate. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work, or even at work? Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. Dr Chris, Dr Dave and Dr Phil, we're taking your science questions on anything science, technology or medicine this evening on The Naked Scientist for BBC Local Radio right around the eastern counties. Give us a call 08459 25 2000 or email me chris at nakedscientist.com if you would like to ask us a question. Any, as I say, anything science, technology and medicine. If we can't answer your question, we'll shove your name in the hat and give you a prize and you have everything to play for tonight, especially with Christmas coming. We've got family tickets to go down and see a 3D movie, the IMAX at the Science Museum in London, and we also have an Encyclopedia Britannica on DVD. Right, we are, of course, also conducting Dave's water-down-the-plug-hole experiment. Just bring us up to speed with what we're doing with this, Dave, tonight. 
We want to test the old theory that water goes goes down the clockwise. Uh, sorry, test the theory that water goes down the plug hole clockwise in the normal hem- anti-clockwise in the normal he- northern hemisphere. And have you been, have you been at hemisphere. the festive cheer in the pub or something? I wouldn't comment. Chris. Shall I try that for you? What Dave's trying to say. <laughs> Is we're trying to test the old theory that water goes down the plug hole one direction in the northern hemisphere and the other direction in the southern hemisphere. Isn't that right, Dave? That's exactly right, Chris. Thanks. So, if you would like to help us with this experiment, put some water in your sink or your bath at home and then pull the plug hole out and see which way the water spirals down. And if you just do the experiment and ring us up with the result, then you can go into the hat to win one of our star prizes. And, hopefully, we're going to get some calls from the southern hemisphere and I hear we have Jane. Hello, Chris. So you're going to help us out and find out what direction the water goes down the plug hole in Australia? Uh, yeah, I'd certainly be happy to help. Where are you exactly in Australia? Uh, in Melbourne, down south. OK, and I thought you were going to say, I'm in my bathroom, but you, you, where are you, outside the bathroom? I'm, I'm outside the bathroom at the moment. OK, so let's do it. Have you, have you got a sink ready to roll? I have indeed. OK. I put the water on to fill it up. Can you can you hear that? Yeah, yeah. The water's running in. Don't don't waste it because Australia's short on water, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hope you're gonna. Actually, it's raining outside at the moment, so. I hope... Oh, you can you can afford a bit of water then. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. So, are you gonna pull the plug out now? I will. Yeah. Go on then. Okay. Here it goes. Okay. What's happening? It's just spiraled down the drain. In which direction? Did it go right clockwise or anti-clockwise? Anti-clockwise. Jane, it's been great having you on the show. Thanks very much for calling in with the Southern Hemisphere's perspective. Thank you very much, Chris. Nice to talk to you. Great, thanks. Okay, bye. So, Dave, there is one for the Southern Hemisphere, Australia, anti-clockwise. Yeah, that's interesting. So, at the moment, both in the North Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere, the, it seems to be going down the plug hole anti-clockwise. We'll see what happens. Mm, sounds a bit dodgy, doesn't it? Would you like to help us out with our massive on-air experiment this evening? What way does water go down the plug hole? If you put a little bit of water in your sink or your bath, pull the plug hole out, does it go down only one direction? Phone up 08459 252000 or email me chris at Phil, space scientist, tell us about this business with a booze cruise to Mars. OK, well, scientists have thought for quite a long time now that there used to be liquid water on Mars, um, seas and oceans, just like there is on Earth, but on Mars... And some of the strong evidence for that has been an iron oxide, a grey iron oxide, that's been spotted on the surface of Mars. And uh, and using the, just the fact that that's formed on Mars, strong evidence that there was once water there, and it's dried up now. Now, a team of scientists at the University of Science and Technology in China have actually found that exactly the same crystal can be formed using alcohol instead of water. So the oceans of Mars could potentially have been filled with alcohol instead of water. Intriguing. So that if we were to go there, would we still find any vestiges of that alcohol, or is it now completely gone? Um, at the moment, it, it, it's completely gone. I mean, we're talking millennia ago when there was liquid water on Mars. And now, where do you think that would have come from? Would, it, would that have come in the same way as we think water came to the Earth in the form of comets? Would that water have come... Oh, sorry, the alcohol have come to Mars in the form of a comet? The most likely way it could have formed was as methane that's formed, or that's been brought to Mars, then oxidises to form methanol, which is the alcohol that we've found, or that's mm. possibly so, the creation. So if it's methanol, you wouldn't want to drink that, would you? It's you wouldn't so really. It's pretty nasty stuff. Burn the back of your eyes out and, and possibly give you a mild case of death if you drink enough. Actually, you know, the cure for abuse of methanol, if you accidentally poison yourself with methanol, is to get really, really drunk. Really? On I alcohol, didn't on, that. on ethanol. Uh, the reason is that there's an enzyme in your liver 
that takes methanol and our and ethanol alcohol that we drink in a bottle of scotch or whatever and it converts the methanol to formalin the stuff which you fix dead bodies with and which is very very toxic to you so if you take that enzyme and add loads and loads of ethanol in what's in johnny walker or john smith whatever if you add lots of ethanol to it the enzyme gets so busy dealing with the ethanol it forgets to process the methanol which gets weed out from your body the normal way and so you don't get poisoned isn't that clever does that mean if you go into hospital they'll give you like loads of free alcohol chris (laughs) <laughs> yes, it's absolutely true. And the other way you can do this is if you drink some antifreeze, because antifreeze has got ethylene glycol in it, and that also gets broken down by the enzyme, and it makes a very, very toxic substance. So the only cure is to go and have an essentially very big dose of alcohol. And so they put you in, in hospital and, and force you to drink huge amounts of alcohol, so you get the hangover from hell the next day. But boy, is it a cheap one. So probably not recommended, then. Let's have a quick chat to Chris, who's in Suffolk. Good evening, Chris. Good evening. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. What's your question? Well, firstly, my question is, when you sneeze, why is it such a horrible smell sometimes? Tell us a bit more about your experience. Um, <laughs> that's just I've noticed. If you have a real sneeze, mm. it's a horrible sort of, almost like a cyanide smell. Do you, do you know what cyanide smells like? Well, obviously I don't. But <laughs> I assume it's a smell. No, I'll tell you why I asked that, Chris, because cyanide actually smells lovely. Yeah. It's a really nice smell, cyanide. Do you know what it smells like? Presumably not. It smells like marzipan. Because almonds, which we make marzipan from, they're wild relative bitter almonds. You mustn't eat those because they make cyanide. And the reason they make cyanide is to ward off animals like us from eating them. But the the ones that we grow to turn into marzipan for our Christmas cake, and that's highly appropriate being as it's Christmas time, we've got the Christmas edition of Naked Scientists, but those species don't make the cyanide, so you can make your marzipan with impunity. Right. Clever, huh? I've no idea why your sneeze tastes horrible. It smells... (laughs) It's not always, it's just sometimes it's a very sort of strange smell. Yeah, I think one possibility that springs to mind is that when you sneeze, essentially what it is is a lot of pent-up air, you take a deep breath in, and it's like your body trying to scratch the inside of your nose, because unless you've got very, very thin fingers that can reach a very long way up your nose, or you've been abusing cocaine, so you have a bigger nose than you should have up there, uh, it's not possible to scratch the inside of your nose. So your body has this ingenious strategy, called a sneeze, for scratching the inside of the nose, and the way it does it is by shoving this huge amount of air very, very fast down your nose. And so it scratches the inside of the nose and hopefully dislodges whatever is causing the irritation. And that irritation, it can be an infection, it can be a foreign body. And in fact, there was a woman in Hong Kong a couple of years ago who went hitchhiking uh, and went for a walk in the hills, got a bit hot and sweaty, so she splashed some water from a, a mountain stream on her face. And, uh, and then thought, oh, I feel much more refreshed now. But a couple of weeks later, started to develop really bad nosebleeds. And she went to the doctor who said, oh, it's just, you know, it's just a cold or something. And then she went to see another doctor because these nosebleeds got even worse. And do you know what she found in her nose? No. There's a leech that was 10 centimetres long. So when she splashed the water up her nose, mm. uh, it, there was some there was a, a baby leech in there that got up her nose, and because the nose is such a fantastic blood supply, it latched on and grew in her nose. Yeah, because I've seen African people that have grown them in their legs, and I mean they can be very long, can't they? Well, that's those those ones aren't uh, actually leeches; they're guinea worms. That's something slightly different. Leeches are little little blood suckers, and they're actually very very useful medicinally. And the reason for that is that they have a venom which is called hirudin, and that venom. If, it, if it's injected into the bloodstream, it's very, very good at thinning the blood. And so plastic surgeons are really keen on using leeches because they, the venom from leeches gets into a wound when you've had to stitch something back on and stops the blood clotting in the wound so it keeps the blood flowing in very, very well and that keeps the tissue alive. 
right. I reckon your nose feels funny after a sneeze, though, because perhaps it's been blocked up beforehand and it gets cleared, or when you sneeze, you bring some other mucusy stuff, which has got other stuff in it, up from further down your respiratory tract, and it brings it into contact with the respiratory epithelium uh, and the olfactory epithelium, in other words, the layer of cells that does the smelling up your nose, and that makes you sensitive to the smell for a little while. Yeah. I reckon that's why. It's actually stopped doing it now, because a, a year ago I gave up smoking, but... Um, I was, I was going to say, because sometimes if you smoke a lot, you, get a, you, you often can't smell as well as you should be able to, and part of that is that you get a lot more mucus in the airways. Right. And, and so when you blast the mucus out of the way, mm. then the bit of the airways that do the smelling can smell a lot better. Oh, right. Oh. Do you want to have a quick go at the quiz? Yeah, go on then. All right then. Male mosquitoes are the ones that bite you. Is that science fact or science fiction? No, unfortunately not. It's actually the female mosquitoes that drink blood, and that provides them with the protein they need to lay their eggs. Uh, I'm not surprised. Most females are bloodsuckers. Oh, <laughs> you said it, Chris, I didn't, but, you know, a lot of men out there are identifying with your sentiment. The next question. The speed of light is constant throughout the universe. Is that science fact or science fiction? I'd say that was probably fact. A slightly nasty one here. Uh, it's false, because the speed of the light will slow down but only in different mediums. So if light goes through wa water or something, it will slow down, which is also why it bends around corners and why spoons look bent if you put them in water. Yeah, but you didn't mention the water. <laughs> no, but that's in the universe, Chris. <gasps> All right. Trick question. Sorry, it's Christmas time. You have to give us a little bit of slack. Yeah, I understand. Thanks for phoning in. Great to have you on the show. Did you want to know about the water? Oh, go on then. What, you, what have you found in Suffolk? Well, strangely enough, just before I came on air, I filled the bath up. Yep. Anyway, it went clockwise. Clockwise, right, that's another one for... for that's su in Suffolk, Dave. Okay, it goes clockwise. OK. Chris, uh, thank you very much for your call. OK. It's The Naked Scientist, Dr Chris, Dr Dave and Dr Phil, here with you until seven this evening for our Christmas festive edition of the show. We're taking your science questions. Anything to do with science, technology and medicine, 08459 25 2000, if you'd like to get your question into us. If you fox us and we can't help you out, then there's a prize in it for you. 08459 25 2000 or chris at nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists, supported by the Wellcome Trust. If you'd like to get a question into us, 08459 25 2000. It is Dr Chris, that's me, as the Naked Scientist, here this evening taking your science questions. Now, one of the other things we do each week is we have a podcast pick, and our producer Petro wades through everything you send us for looking for audio, which you've recorded at home, uh, which you think might be appropriate for our programme. If you'd like to record us a podcast pick, all you have to do is get your microphone out, tell us about something interesting, scientific, should be about a minute to two minutes long, just record it, email it to me, chris at nakedscientist.com, if it's good enough, Petro will get it into the show. And this week's one comes from Tim Kammer, who runs Skeptic Moment. And the idea of this is he puts together all these little short, bite-sized chunks of things that people take for granted. But actually, if you scratch below the surface, they're not quite as true as they might first seem. And he's been out there looking at the science of dowsing, which is how people use lumps of wood and tell you that suddenly, and miraculously, there's a spring under your garden or something. Let's say you're in the middle of Montana and thirsty and all you have with you is a fork stick. You can use it to dig for water or maybe something else. Dowsers, sometimes called water witchers, say they can find underground water, buried treasure, and even golf balls using only a rod and a stick. They claim when walking directly above the buried water or item, the rods point downward. Or if you're using two rods, 
they cross each other. Dowsing has been around for thousands of years, and there are thousands of dowsers doing it all over the globe every day. Most dowsers say the proof is their success over the years. They forget the fact that water is usually most anywhere beneath the surface. But when put to a simple test of finding water in hidden underground pipes, their success rate is no better than chance. Some dowsers are even paid to find buried stuff for people by swinging a pendulum over a map. These map dowsers don't even have to leave home. Talk about a nice home office telecommuting job. I wouldn't mind that either. That's Tim Kammer from Skeptic Moment. If you'd like to check out his website, you can go to skeptic.podblaze.com, and he has lots of these little things where he looks at things which we take for granted, but when you look at them a little bit more closely, are actually a bit of an urban myth. If you'd like to send us your own podcast for Petro's podcast picks each week on the Naked Scientist, just send it to Chris at nakedscientist.com. It should be an MP3. Uh, and no more than about a minute and a half long. Uh, a bit longer, and Petro will listen to it, but he might need to edit it a little bit. But send them in anyway, anything you're doing that's interesting from the world of science, technology, or medicine. Right, now we've got another uh, person in the Southern Hemisphere to help us out with our, got our plug hole challenge this evening. Dave, just remind us, what is the plug hole challenge, just in case people have only just tuned in? And good evening if you've just joined us. We're trying to find out whether water goes down the plug hole in a different direction in the Northern Hemisphere to the Southern Hemisphere. So just fill up a sink, pull the plug out, and see which way the water goes down. Massive radio on-air experiment. Phone in with the answer, 08459 25 2000. And just for taking part, we'll put your name in the hat. We have some fab prizes up for grabs this evening. We are sending you to the IMAX to see a 3D movie with your family for Christmas or after Christmas if you can't make it before Christmas. And we also have an Encyclopedia Britannica on DVD. Right, another one in the Southern Hemisphere. Jason Knight is in Australia. Hi, Jason. Hello, Dr Chris. So where are you? Don't say in the bathroom. I'm in Melbourne, Australia. Excellent. That's the, that's the second person we've had from Melbourne, actually. It must be because you've got too much water to play with in Melbourne. Is it raining or something? It, has, it is actually raining today, but um, we've, we've been in, a, in the middle of a four-year drought, apparently. So. OK, so we're going to have to be very economic with this water we're going to use. Definitely. I'm just letting it drip into the, into the bowl. OK, so you've got a sink full of water for us. Yes. OK, now hopefully you're going to tell us what way the water goes down. So are you ready to de-plug? OK, I'm just topping up now. As you can hear. Okay, we've got a half full sink of water. Okay. What, what do you reckon? What direction you, does, do you think it's going to go? Um, I think it's going to go anti-clockwise. Okay, let's find out, shall we? Here we go. Deplugging. It looks like it's anti-clockwise. Okay, well that's that's another vote from Australia, cast. So that's the southern hemisphere strongly represented today. Yes. Okay, well, thanks very much for doing that, Jason. No worries. What do you think of the Naked Scientists? Are you a regular listener down there in Oz, then? Yeah, I listen to it every week. Uh, look forward to the uh, to the episodes every week and download it onto my uh, iPod and listen to it at work, and it keeps me keeps me occupied. What do you actually do at work then? Uh, I'm a graphic designer. So you're not a scientist? No, not a scientist by any means. I love listening to uh, science programs, and yours is definitely the best. Way, thank you. Flattery get you everywhere. Ha <laughs> Alright, well thanks very much for joining us, Jason, and for taking part in our experiment. Not a problem. You can get back to rainy Melbourne. <laughs> thanks a lot. Cheers. You can get back to uh, rainy England. Oh, it's, it's certainly that, and cold too. Yeah. <laughs> a bit colder there uh, this year than it is uh, for us this time of year. Okay, well cheers, Jason, and bye. Thanks a lot, Chris. Bye. Bye-bye. The Naked Scientist, Dr Chris, Dr Dave... And Dr Phil, we're here with you and, and until 7 o'clock this evening, finding out 
all about what direction the water goes down the plug hole. Is there a difference between the northern and the southern hemisphere? If you want to take part in our experiment, 08459 25000. We've had a call from Ray in Suffolk who says his sink water went down anti-clockwise. So that's another one for you over there, Dave, anti-clockwise. So okay. Suffolk's now got a clockwise and an anti-clockwise, isn't it? Indeed. Very, very shortly, we'll be having a chat to uh, Peter, who is in God Manchester. So hang in there, Peter. We'll be with you very, very shortly. First, let's have a very quick chat to Rob, who's in Florida. Hi, Rob. Dr. Chris, I'm in St. Petersburg, Florida, which is latitude 27 degrees, 52 minutes north, and longitude 82 degrees west, 8 degrees. And to the layman, Rob, does that put you on the equator-ish, then? A little bit south, you know, uh, it's uh, subtropical when you yep. get below Miami. Yep. So I've got a sink and a toilet and a tub, and I'm discharging them all now. Okay. And anti-clockwise. Anti-clockwise. Which we call uh, counterclockwise in the U.S. Yeah, because that's American and, for left, Dave. And the, there's an injector on the toilet, so you have to be careful of that. And it just went... Uh, there's a what on the toilet? Injector with the water. <laughs> okay. So Anti-clockwise. Now we're at the tub, which it doesn't have any ejector. Okay. So you're just going to pull the plug out on that? That's going uh, counterclockwise as well. Science marches forward. Right. Well, so so Rob's got three out of three anti-clockwise then, Dave. Okay. Uh, well, so that's, that's pretty much on the equator, though, isn't it? Which is interesting. Because at the equator, Michael Palin found that actually didn't go anywhere. We just sit on the equator. It should just sort of wobble and not go anywhere. Well, the sink Intriguing. went down, but the tub displays some... Definitely, I'm Rob, thank you so much for taking the time to call in from Florida. Uh, so do you do you enjoy the Naked Scientist? Immensely. I download the podcast, uh, and, and it's it's a great enjoyment to me. It's better than listening to a lot of other stuff that one could listen to. If you can just have fun with science, it opens up other vistas to you, other ways of asking about your world and questioning about what goes on around you. Cheers, Rob. The check's in the post. Okay. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Naked Scientist tonight. That was Rob over there in Florida, who's helping us with our experiment this evening to find out what direction the water goes down the drain. Is it different in the northern and the southern hemisphere? If you want to take part, 08459 25000, and there's a prize in it for you just for doing the experiment. We'll shove, out, shove all the names in the hat, and someone's going to win tonight just, just by doing the experiment. 08459 25000. Coming up shortly, we'll be talking to Peter, who's in God Manchester. <laughs> Merry Christmas. It's the Naked Scientist, Dr Chris, Dr Phil and Dr Dave. We're here with you until seven. We're stripping down science on BBC Local Radio right across the eastern counties. If you have a science question, nothing's too much trouble for us this evening. It is Christmas and if, we fo- if we're totally foxed, then we'll give you a prize. How about that? I can't say fairer than that. 08459 25000 or you can give me an email, chris at nakedscientist.com. Peter is in God Manchester. Hello, Peter. Hello. Good evening. You're wel- welcome to the Naked Scientist. What's your question? I'm going to give you the Google results first. Excellent. It's very interesting because I, I, I thought residual water swirl might have some effect. So I, I ran some water into a, a wash basin and left it about an inch and a half uh, deep. Yep. Left it for about 20 minutes so it was absolutely calm and still. Yep. And then pulled the plug out very carefully, straight vertically. Yep. And the result was no discernible swirl at all. It went straight down the sides. Right, well, that's intriguing. Uh, this guy deserves a bonus mark because he's done the experiment and he's thought about it scientifically. Are you a scientist, Peter? Um, not specifically, no, I'm an engineer. <laughs> oh, is it that same thing? Close yeah, yeah, okay, well, very good. Excellent. Anyway, the question is um, Was the Star of Bethlehem a real astronomical event or was it just something that was astrological? Dr. Phil, this is your, this is your bag. It's, it's space science. Okay, yeah, um, there's actually 
there's been quite a lot of people that have looked into this sort of thing, whether or not it's a possibility that it really was a real event. Uh, and actually, one of my lecturers back when I was at university did, wrote a paper looking at that exact same thing. Now, he was looking on the theory that possibly if you get Jupiter and Saturn and Mars and basically as many planets as you can, all in the very same spot in the sky, can that give something bright enough to look like the Star of Bethlehem? Now, he found that, no, that's probably not the case. It's just, it's just not bright enough mm. to actually give you something that would be represented as the Star of Bethlehem. But there are some other possibilities for bright things that can form in the sky that can appear and then disappear. Uh, and those sort of things include comets, uh, asteroids, and possibly supernova as well. So mm. something like a, a really bright... Uh, a, a star that's completely unseeable mm. normally in the sky then explodes, and when it explodes, it actually throws out as much light as an entire galaxy. So that's millions and millions and billions of stars. So, and all in one, one tiny spot. For a matter of a few days only, usually, isn't it? Absolutely, so not for very long at all. It's interesting, because we had someone on not so long ago, Peter, called John, who was in Clacton, and he came out of the pub after... He says he only had a couple of pints, <laughs> uh, so we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. But it is sort of coming up towards Christmas. And he said he looked up in the sky and there was this very bright flare that winked on in the sky. And then it lasted a little while and then it went off again. And, in fact, we've actually had a couple of emails about this. We had one from a guy in New York and now I've had one from Kevin Wong, who's in Columbia University. And Kevin says, Hi, Dr Chris. Let me thank you for your wonderful show. I haven't missed a podcast yet. Amazing stuff. Even my non-science-oriented girlfriend enjoys listening. Um, John from Clacton's question about observing a gamma-ray burst, because John speculated perhaps he was seeing gamma-ray burst, sounds a lot like an iridium flare. This is a very brief and very uh, intense reflection of the sun's rays off a of satellite solar panels. And iridium are actually a network of telecommunications satellites. So they, but I don't think that can be uh, something that could have caused the star of Bethlehem, do you? I think that would be a bit premature. Yeah, it would, wouldn't it? <laughs> do you believe in UFOs? Do you want to have a quick go at the quiz? Uh, yes, I'll have a go at the quiz. OK. Animals which are ovines are omnivorous. Fact or fiction? Animals which are ovines are omnivorous. Um... Oh, that's an interesting one, because a, a cow is described as bovine, so I'm actually going to say false, because I think they're probably going to be herbivorous. That's absolutely correct. Uh, an ovine is actually a sheep, and just like cows, they're herbivores as well, just eat grass. Right. Well done, Peter. Next question. A kilogram of feathers weighs less than a kilogram of lead. Is that science fact or science that's fiction? That's a trick one. They're, the bulk is very different, but <laughs> the weight is going to be exactly the same. Yeah, well done. As long as they're on the same planet, then they're both going to weigh the same amount. Well done, Peter. Excellent. Two out of two. Thank you. In the lead so far. Thank you. Right, thank you. Peter in God Manchester. It's the Naked Scientist, Dr Chris, Dr Dave and Dr Phil. We're with you until seven. We're looking this evening at which direction water goes down the drain in your house. We've heard from Australia. Give us the rundown, Dave. What's been the situation so far? Well, at the moment, the southern hemisphere is very strongly coming out as anti-clockwise, which is possibly not going along with the theory. The northern hemisphere is a bit confused with two anti-clockwise and one clockwise and one absolutely nothing when the guy did the experiment really well. And the equator's coming out very strongly anti-clockwise. So if you want to help us out with our experiment, just give us a call, 08459 25 2000. Dennis in Peterborough says water went anti-clockwise in Peterborough. OK. Because in Suffolk we've had a bit of a clockwise bias there, haven't we? And Fares in uh, Norfolk says the water there went anti-clockwise as well. Interesting. So that's adding quite a lot of anti-clockwises, isn't it? 
slowly, slowly. We'll see what happens. It's The Naked Scientist, uh, and of course we are offering you the chance to go down to the IMAX at the Science Museum in London to uh, see a 3D movie, the IMAX Cinema. If you'd like to have a go at winning tickets to that, just give us a call 08459 25 2000 to have a go at Science Fact or Science Fiction. And we also have up for grabs this evening an Encyclopedia Britannica. So all you have to do is give us a ring and have a go at our competition and hopefully do our experiment with water too. 08459 25 2000 is the number. Now, Dr Cat, who is normally here on The Naked Scientist, she's got a week off this week, but she's been down to the Grant Museum at University College London and what they were doing there last Saturday was to have a look at the science of forensics, a bit like us, but they were looking at what animals can do to help police solve crimes. And what was really interesting is that someone had a very large stash of, co- of, of cannabis and, well, I'll let her tell the story. This is part of the uh, animal forensics workshop they were doing. This is a, a collection of insects which were found on a, a massive hall of cannabis which was captured in New Zealand. And some people were arrested and they said that it was only only for their personal consumption, even though there are 188 kilograms of cannabis found. So they said they'd grown it themselves, which got them off out of a few laws, and as I said, it was only for their personal consumption. And what the forensic scientists did was went through all of the cannabis and found lots of insects on them. There were nine different species of insects, and by identifying them and working out exactly where they live in the world, they overlap all their ranges. They can find out exactly where the cannabis was grown. So what insects have we got here? We've got lots of different types of beetles, some, um, some rove beetles and some darkling beetles, and we've got some rice weevils. They're enormous, those. Oh, no, no which they're, ones they're are the rice, big ones? These are the, these are the ground beetles, which are a lot bigger, and we get some species of these in this country. They're about an inch long. How big are the ones in the UK? They're about the same size. In fact, some of those probably live in England as well, actually. But we've got some really tiny ones, which are about 300 microns long, about a third of a millimetre these little tiny calcid wasps here, which are very hard to find, I should think, if you're going through 188 kilograms of, of cannabis. I can imagine. So when they looked at where all these animals live, what was their conclusion? Well, they found that they actually only all live in a very tiny area of Burma in Southeast Asia. So they found that the criminals had actually imported all the cannabis, so they were arrested for drug trafficking as well as possessing a huge amount of illegal substance. So not all for their personal use, then? Not all for their personal use, no. Do insects eat cannabis? Um, yeah, a lot of insects eat plants, obviously, cannabis among them. I don't know if they get influenced or <laughs> by, by that at all. I'm not sure about that. I don't know how you tell if a beetle's stoned or not. I don't know either, I'm afraid. <laughs> Super sleuth Dr Cat talking to Jack Ashby at the Grant Museum at UCIV, University College London down in London. And last week, of course, they were running their animal forensics uh, open day and inviting you to go and learn about how insects can be used to give the game away, especially if you are a cannabis stasher by the look of it. If you'd like to have a, a go at our quiz tonight on The Naked Scientist with me, Dr Chris, Dr Dave and Dr Phil, 08459 25 2000, science fact or science fiction, up for grabs and Encyclopedia Britannica on DVD. And also, we've got tickets to go take you and your family down to see an IMAX or 3D movie at the Science Museum down in London. Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. Let's have a quick chat to Ben. Hello, Ben. Hello. You're over there in Longstanton. What's um, it like in Longstanton? No, it's actually Longstratton. Oh, Longstratton. Sorry, yeah. I can't read. <laughs> <laughs> no, so what's your question? Um, if you're ticklish, yeah. if someone tickles you, then you giggle and laugh because it affects you. But if you tickle yourself in the same spot, it doesn't affect you. And your question is, why? Yeah. Hmm. Are you ticklish? Uh, yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm quite ticklish, but not as ticklish as my wife, which is very useful, because if she tickles me, I know I can tickle her more back. But the reason for this is exactly the same reason that... Uh, well, well, someone did a really clever experiment on this recently, actually, and they had a special apparatus where they could tap your finger with this automatic device, and it made, it made you think you were doing it yourself. And they recorded to see how much people thought they were being tapped when they actually did it themselves and when, they th when the machine did it for them. And what they found is that when the brain programs a movement to make a, a sensation or a tickle or something or a scratch, what it actually does is sends an inhibitory signal, a switch-off signal, to the part of the brain that would normally be tickled if you were scratched in that area. So in other words, what happens is you've got a sort of killjoy part of your brain that says, if I'm tickled in this area when I'm doing this, then I want you to ignore the tickle. Because, of course, your brain is sending that message itself, you switch off your own tickle. But if you tickle someone else, their brain doesn't know you're going to do that. So it doesn't send that killjoy signal to the part of the brain that would respond to a tickle. And so they get driven mad by you going... Yeah. So now you understand. Yeah. Now, do you want to have a go at the quiz? Uh, yes, please. Okie dokie. Three cubed is 27. Is that science fact or science fiction? Three cubed is 27. Um, fiction. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, three cubed is three times three times three, which is 27. OK, next question, Ben. Penicillin, that's the antibiotic. Have you heard of that? No. Have you never had penicillin? Yes, I have. Yeah, OK. It's an antibiotic that you take for infections. It's produced by bacteria that normally live in the soil. Is that science fact or science fiction? Um, fact. I'm afraid not, Ben. Um, penicillin is actually made by a mould. The mould uses it to kill the bacteria which are trying to compete with it. Unlucky Ben. Didn't quite get there this time, but maybe, maybe after Christmas. Okay. Thanks for having a go, and it was a great question. So, Naked Scientists, Dr Chris, Dr Dave and Dr Phil, we're here with you through until seven. If you'd like to ask us a science question, anything to do with science, technology and medicine, 08459 25 2000, or you can send me an email, chris at nakedscientist.com. David is in Northampton. Good evening, David. Good evening, Dr Chris. Have you had a go at our experiment? I have, yes. What did you find? Uh, anticlockwise, the water went. Dave, another anticlockwise. It's very interesting. It seems that anticlockwise is popular everywhere, all over the world. Anticlockwise seems to be winning. We've got five... All over the world. All over the world. Well, Australia and Florida and the whole of East Anglia. Just remind everyone, in case someone's just joined us, just remind everyone what we're doing. We're trying to find out whether water goes down the plug hole more often in one direction in the Northern Hemisphere than in the other... In the, than in the Southern Hemisphere. So different directions in Dif the two hemispheres. That's the one. Just, just to add to your list, Anne in Peterborough just called in. She said her water went clockwise, Dave. OK. So you've got one to counterbalance your anti-clockwise everywhere. Sorry, David, we got distracted. What was your question? No, no, question. All right, do you want to have a go at the quiz? Yes, please, yeah. Okie dokie, here we go. Historically, ink was made from elm trees. Is that fact or fiction? Fiction. Do you know what it was made from? I can't think now, but it's not what you... Yep, you're absolutely right. Uh, inks were actually made by extracting the tannin from oak apples. So that's growth on oak trees caused by uh, parasitic wasps. And you mix that with iron sulphate, and when the mixture comes into contact with air, it forms a dark brown black colour from oxidation. Well done. One out of one so far. Next question. A group of crows, the birds, is called a slaughter. Is that science fact or science fiction? Um, fiction. Do you know what it is called? Nope. 
Yeah, well done. Apparently a group of crows is called a murder. This may have something to do with their tendency to peck out eyes of young lambs and things. OK, well done, David. You got two out of two. That's very good. Oh, thank you. Thank you for taking part in The Naked Scientist tonight. See you later. Bye. Let's have a quick chat to Grant, who is in Ipswich. Hello, Grant. Hello. Good evening. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Thank you. How are you getting on? Um, yeah, I'm fine. Um, but I just got out of the bath, and when I took the plug out, it went clockwise. Clockwise. Interesting. So, and you're in, you're in Ipswich? Yeah. OK, so that Suffolk seems to be throwing up some anomalies here, Dave. Maybe the Very whole bizarre. Suffolk spinning in the opposite direction Must the rest be. of the world. Must be. Grant, do you want to have a go at the quiz? Um, yes, please. OK, a Google is one followed by 100 zeros. Is that science fact or science fiction? Um, fact. Absolutely correct. That was, uh, the Google was actually invented by the mathematician Edward Kasner, who asked his nephew, uh, Milton Sirota, suggest a name for the number. And he came up with the word. Well done. One out of one so far. You could win yourself some IMAX tickets or a DVD Encyclopedia Britannica grant. If you get this one right, you ready? Yeah. The fibia is a bone in your leg. Is that science fact or science fiction? Um, could you repeat it, please? Okay, we'll let you confer because you're a bit young. The fibia is a bone in your leg. Is that science fact or science fiction? It's a fact. Bad luck. There's no such bone as a fibia. Your, the lower leg is called um, it's called it's called the tibia, and there's another bone in there called the fibula. Yeah, it's actually the fibula. It was a trick. Well done, Grant. You got one out of two. Okay. Thank you for telling us about your bath. Okay. Good to have you on the program. All right. Naked Scientist, Dr Chris, Dr Dave, and Dr Phil. We're here with you until seven o'clock, and this evening we're conducting radios. Big, exciting experiment in the eastern counties where we're asking you what direction the water is going down your plug hole. So if you can help us out with our experiment, you could go in the hat to win yourself uh, a DVD of the Encyclopedia Britannica or IMAX tickets to go and see a 3D movie in London. You just have to do the experiment and call in 08459 25 2000 is the phone number or you can send me an email, chris at nakedscientist.com. Laying the facts bare, the Naked Scientists. Good evening. It is Dr Chris, Dr Dave and Dr Phil here for the last time in 2005 with tonight's Naked Scientist. We're next back on the 8th of January when we'll be finding out why it is that some people get a little bit on the podgy side over Christmas. Why do we gain weight? What controls appetite? And better still, how does exercise help us to lose weight? That's all coming up in the new year, new year series of the Naked Scientist, 8th of January onwards, 2006. Now, I've got a couple of quick emails here. This is from Kerry Wybrow who says, Hi Chris, in my kitchen water deck goes down the plug hole anti-clockwise. So there you go, Dave. Um, in my bath, which faces east, water goes down clockwise. Oh, my God. She says, I'm in King's Lynn in Norfolk. There's something weird in Norfolk, Dave. Uh, she has a question as well, which we'll, we'll answer next time, Kerry, because we're running a little bit short of time. But thank you for writing in anyway. Uh, I also have a question uh, here from... Ray, who's in Alderborough, he says, Dear Chris, I was listening to your programme while travelling back from Essex tonight. It's very interesting. In regard to water going down the plug hole, I've tried it out in Sydney as well as in Suffolk. Right, we're going to get two answers for one, Dave. Uh, in Sydney, it rotated clockwise with a bit of help. Mm, interesting. <laughs> worrying, worrying. The opposite happened in Suffolk, he says. The opposite happened in Suffolk. So, so one going so he gets one all. in Suffolk. Yeah, one all. Right, let's have a quick chat to Peter. We're going to have to be very quick, Peter. Good evening, Peter. Hello, Chris. OK, we're going to have to be very quick here. Yes, indeed. Uh, my question is about wood. When yep. you put wood on a fire, why does some wood spit and crackle and other wood burn slowly and quietly? It, there's a couple of reasons for this. It's usually to do with how dry the wood is, actually. 
because what splits the wood apart is if there's a pocket of water or a pocket of gas in there, when the wood gets very, very hot, then it vaporises very, very fast. And, and when, of course, you turn something which is a liquid into a gas, you can see this with just boiling your kettle. One kettle full of water can fill a whole room with steam, so gas takes up a lot more space than liquid does. So if you heat a piece of wood up, very, very hot, and you can do it with coal as well. If you make coal a little bit wet and then put it on the fire, it'll spit like crazy. And the reason is that the heat from the fire vaporises tiny pockets of water inside the, the thing you're trying to burn. They very quickly expand and they do their own little explosion, like a, like a bomb going off, and they blast their way up to the surface and that's what the spitting is. My eldest boy will be delighted because he said it depends on the content of the moisture, Dad. So he was spot on. Absolutely. Give him a prize. Right, do you want to have a very quick go at the quiz? <clears throat> very quick. Because we got across to Dr Carl in Australia. The world's fastest swimmers listed in the Guinness Book of Records are bacteria. Is that fact or fiction? Fiction. <laughs> no, unfortunately, it's true. Um, Fly rather than swim. They're actually, it's actually a bacterium called Delovibrio, and they have a little propeller at their back that pushes them along very, very fast. Brilliant. Right, OK, next question. Methane gas is odourless. Is that science fact or science fiction? Uh, that is fiction. I'm afraid not. It's true. They put special smell. Thank you very much for joining us, Peter. We're going to have to cross to Carl now. Brilliant programme, thank you. You're welcome. The Naked Scientist, Dr Chris, Dr Dave, Dr Phil, we're here with you until seven, and we're now going to join up with Dr Carl from Australia to find out the answer to this water-going-down-the-plug-hole conundrum. Good evening, Dr Smith. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's, it's lovely to be in touch with those convicts down in Australia. Uh, well, look, so long as we're occasionally able to speak with our betters in the mother country, we get a sense of enlightenment and we know where we should be heading, and we appreciate these small gestures from our, our betters. You know, when I was queuing up at the Australian Embassy last year to try and get my visa to come to Australia, one of the boxes I had to tick was to say that I didn't have a criminal record, but then I, I didn't think that was still necessary, Carl. <laughs> Not anymore, mate. Oh, well, that's a good one. What we've been doing this evening, Dr Carl, is asking people all around the east of England to fill sinks and baths with water, pull out the plug, and then see which way the water swirls down the plug hole. We've got a mixture of results this evening, but is this experiment actually possible? Can we detect the spinning of the earth using this approach? Is it doable? You can get it to work. However, the, you're looking at a thing called the Coriolis force, which is actually angular momentum under a different name. And the Coriolis force on the small bodies of water you're working on is roughly 10 million times smaller than the gravity force. So you really need to do the experiment delicately. Well, let's just back up a bit here, talking about angular momentum. You know the one with the ice skate? You know what happens when they pull their hands in towards the centre of the line of their body? They speed up, don't they? As they're pirouetting. Yeah, they speed up because they bring more of their mass to the spin axis of their body. Well, think about the Earth spinning. Like uh, at the equator, it's a long way from the spin axis. At the pole, it's right on the spin axis. You have a storm which normally starts a little bit away from the equator when the water's around 27 degrees C. That's where you get your cyclones, hurricanes, typhoons, etc. being born. And then they head away from the equator towards the pole. And as they do so, they head towards the spin axis of the Earth. And they're picking up a bit of, there's a bit of angular momentum that has to be accounted for. And if you do the equations, this leads to uh, a clockwise rotation of a cyclone cyclone, hurricane, typhoon, etc. in the southern hemisphere, anti-clockwise in the northern hemisphere. But you're looking at something which is tens, hundreds, maybe even a thousand kilometres across. How can you hope to see that same effect in a tiny, tiny tub? And the answer is, well, if you do the experiment very carefully, you should be able to see it. And in fact, it has been done not once, but twice. So once it is possible. 
It has been done. In a fine journal called Nature, in 1962, there was a paper by Shapiro, who did the experiment at MIT, and then a few years later, at the University of Sydney, also published in Nature, a paper by Trefethen, T-R-E-F-E-T-H-E-N, uh, in 4th of September 1964, the bathtub vortex in the southern hemisphere. And what you do is you get a special bathtub. It's two yards across. It's six inches deep, and it's got a tiny, tiny central hole. And you put a cork there so you can see which way the water's going. You let the water settle for a day or two, so you lose all the residual spin from putting it in there, and then you open the drain plug. The water begins to flow out very slowly. Nothing really significant happens for about 12 to 15 minutes, and around that stage, you can begin to see the cork take on a clockwise or anti-clockwise rotation depending on your hemisphere slowly at first then gradually increasing to one rotation every four seconds by the end and Shapiro wrote when all the precautions described were taken and there's a lot of precautions the vortex was invariably that means every single time in the counterclockwise direction so if you're a fair way away from the equator where the earth is uh, fairly steeply curved the, relative to the equator uh, and you do it carefully you can see it but if you just rush off the airplane at uh, Singapore which is one degree from the equator and the surface of the earth is parallel virtually to the spin axis of the earth so there's no difference from one side of the bathtub to the other rush, rush the bathroom fill the oval hand basin with the off-center drain plug with water and then while it's still spinning pull the off-center plug out of the off-center plug hole you're not going to see anything apart from local effects so in other words when michael palin was fooled into thinking this was true at the equator when he took a step either side of the equator and, and they claimed that they were seeing differential spinning motions in the bowl that he was being fooled Mate, there's an old Polish saying, if you've got a dog, don't bark. And <laughs> it's fairly obscure, but what it means is stick to your speciality. The number of areas of ignorance we have are huge. And in this particular case, in a TV series, Pole to Pole, Michael Palin meets a man called Michael McCleary who says that this line here pointing on the ground is the equator, and so the northern hemisphere is over there, southern hemisphere is there, and then... He's got a little little square tub that he's holding his hand, a little tiny tub with floating matchsticks, and then he walks off in one direction, and then he uh, spins as he turns around to face the tourist, and that gives a spin to the water. Then he takes his finger off the bottom, and bingo, the water flows out in the clockwise. You can see the matchsticks going around clockwise or anti-clockwise, as he described. He's been conned, poor Mr. Palin, but I, I, I do admire his work, um, and if I tell you the number of times I've been conned, I'm sure it's much greater than the times Mr. Palin's been conned. Which just goes to show, I suppose, that even the great Michael Palin can be conned sometimes. But look, thank you, Dr Carl, very much for joining us and for helping us to avoid throwing out the baby with the bathwater and debunking the myth of the Coriolis effect and how it affects the direction of spin when water goes down the plug hole. Thank you. Look, thank you, Dr Chris. Thank you for putting me in touch with your fabulous audience. Dr Carl, there, live on The Naked Scientist, debunking the myth about which way water goes down the plug hole. Our results this evening show there's no clear consensus in any direction between the North and the South Hemisphere, exactly as we would have expected. You have to do the experiment much better. I have to say thank you very much to the team here at BBC Radio Cambridgeshire, Petro Minch and Holly Barkley, who've been running the phones this evening, You've done a wonderful job. Thank you for helping to make this series so successful. Thank you to our co-presenters this evening, Dr Dave. Good, good evening, Dave, and thank you very much for coming in. Cheers, Chris. And also, Dr. Phil, thank you, Phil, for doing a wonderful job. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com.